0: Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. In each episode, we spotlight the numerous efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. On this episode, we talk about saving time and money on your farm by leaving the right amount of crop residue at harvest. We also discuss the opportunity to seed cover crops with a combine, and we even dive into the equipment settings you'll need to succeed. Now, here's your host, Elise Koning.
1: Today on the Hat Soil Health Podcast, we have Ray McCormick and Phil Needham We're taking a look at some combine settings and how they relate to chaff distribution, and even seeding some cover crops with a combine, which is not always something that comes to my mind whenever I'm thinking about combining. Usually I'm thinking about harvest, but we can also use certain settings and certain tools on a combine in order to seed some cover crops. Phil Needham and Ray McCormick are going to share about that equipment and some of their experience with doing that. Welcome to the podcast, Phil and Ray.
2: All right. Thanks, Elise. Good to see you. And thanks for having me on.
1: Ray, let's start with you. What's your background in working with cover crops and soil health? What's your experience in customizing your equipment to better serve the soil?
2: I started using cover crops and no-tilling into them in uh, June of 1986, so I've been doing it a long time. Uh, once I started doing it, I became a big believer in the benefits of cover crops, so ever since that day, I've been refining how I put them on, what cover crops that I use, and what are best adapted to my land and to the coming crop and how I can most cost effectively and efficiently get those cover crops on every acre that I farm.
1: Phil, what's your background in agriculture?
3: Sure. So I came to this country in 1989, uh, ag retailer Miles Farm Supply located in Owensboro, Kentucky. They had retail seed fertilizer and chemical locations primarily in southern Indiana, western kentucky tennessee but they also had wholesale distribution locations in a much wider uh, location or or region so i work for those as a work for that company as an agronomist initially with wheat management so my background is agronomy i've got seven years of university education and most of that is agronomy crop protection and soil science so a lot of what i do still is wheat management But we also farm on a small scale. And I also work for different farmers in in an agronomy role to help farmers with their cover crops, establish cover crops, select cover crops, uh, give them some active decisions on how to plant into cover crops and get the best use out of them. And sometimes the most recent views, and this is a great time to have a podcast, but some of your most recent views are easiest to communicate. But this morning I was driving by a field and I'm only guessing that this field has been recreational tillage or full tillage, let's say, for the last 20 or 40 years. And I'm not sure about that. I just know every year it gets worked in the fall. Every year it gets worked a time or two, at least in the spring. And there's a little corner in that same field that's been in permanent grass for as long as I can remember. And that's where the farmer had just loaded trucks and parked things. It was just a little corner of the field that was in grass. And for whatever reason, last summer, last fall, whenever it was, he ripped it. He worked it up. It was bare all winter. And now he's worked it again this spring. So the whole field looks similar now, apart from that little corner that was worked last summer, last fall, is greener. So the small region within the field that's been pasture for many, many years compared to the rest of the field that was tilled was just darker. I mean visibly darker and that kind of serves as a good example to start out you know that's what we're trying to do with cover crops we're gonna we're trying to emulate more cropping you know keeping the ground covered year round so we can hold soil we can hold nutrients uh we planted our cover crop yesterday into into standing cover crops and the ground was mellow it was moist under that residue and some people, you know, within a mile or two are having a hard time this this year getting a no-till planter in the ground in no-till conditions because the ground has dried out with five days of 80 plus Fahrenheit temperatures and wind. So there's a lot of things going on that we can discuss, okay?
1: Our conversation is going to talk a lot about residue and cover crops. So let's start out with residue management. What does that term mean, and why is that important?
2: Well, I look at residue probably quite different than the average farmer. For me, residue is money, it's value, it's I want as much residue as possible. Because on the land that I farm, uh, the biological life has grown to the point that it utilizes that residue as a food supply so the more residue i have the healthier the soils i have the more food there is for the biological life and uh, as phil talked about this is the perfect time to talk about this because in the last two days i've been out uh, going around our fields with all the storms there's sticks laying there and so forth And it gives me a chance to look at all of these cover crops and how beautiful they are here in mid-April. The clovers are greening up and so forth. And I was just cleaning out around a riser where my neighbor's field runs into my grass waterway. And they had lost some of the most beautiful, dark soils off of their farm. Fortunately, I was able to scrape them out with a backhoe and, and put them on my ground. But but right now, we have people out working the ground. We have people no-tilling. But on my ground, it's a lush, green cover crop. So it's a great day in southern Indiana to be a farmer and see the beauty of all those cover crops out there.
1: So you talked about the economics of the residue Go a little bit deeper into what that looks like for you.
2: Well, we, we we go back to what Phil has taught me is there that residue represents nutrients. And so the even distribution of that residue across the field at harvest is critical. So anywhere the residue hasn't covered the ground, there's a deficit. And not only nutrients from the residue, but there's a deficit in the food supply for that biological life. And so even distribution of the residue is critical. But also, I take it a step further. I try to select corn varieties that are particularly robust and tall so that I'll have more residue to put on the soil surface because I'm always alarmed when my soil surface is not covered with residue the biological life has eaten it up and they're starving
3: so for me the more the residue the better raise somebody up very very well there's lots and lots of benefits to residue my challenge that i sometimes see and more often see is the residue out of the back of the combine doesn't get spread evenly for example, at the Louisville Farm Machinery Show this year, 2023, one of the main brands of combines had a huge LED screen. And the combine that was on the screen, on the video on the screen, had what appeared to be a 40 foot head on the front, but the back of the combine appeared to be spreading residue no more than maybe 20 feet. So the head was 40, the residue spread out of the back was 20 feet which right off the bat kind of shows you that whoever's with that company or whoever represents that combine manufacturer wasn't really up to speed on the importance of residue management. Otherwise, they wouldn't show a combine spreading 20 feet with a 40-foot head. But the challenge for the farmer is, unless you can spread residue evenly, you know the heavy residue bands warm up slower, they're wetter, because the soil doesn't obviously dry out very well under a mat of residue, and the streaks between the combine passes, where there's little to no residue, then they dry out quicker, and they're warmer. So when you dig down approximately two inches and push a soil thermometer in the ground horizontally, and you measure soil temperature in the morning or evening, preferably at a two-inch depth, again, horizontally with a soil probe, oftentimes you can see five, seven, eight, fahrenheit differences in soil temperatures just because of soil cover with residue compared to little or no residue so from a point of view of plantability being able to plant your crop into those bands of residue or no residue it changes the way the planter works how it needs to be configured how it needs to be adjusted and then the difference in crop emergence can be drastic because the soil temperature is five or eight Fahrenheit different between the high residue strips and the light. So it's really important to spread residue as evenly as possible with the combine at harvest, okay?
1: Let's talk about the tools that you use to spread that residue. In both of your experiences, what have you seen that works really well and what is the effect on the resulting cover crops?
2: I've had choppers and and the current combine that i'm trading off has a spreader Uh, i've learned a lot from going to phil's presentations but the bigger and heavier pieces of residue will actually fly better so not chopping up real fine and trying to spread real fine residue uh, it makes it easier to throw bigger pieces and then playing the wind correctly is part of that But in my operation, since we have air seeders that blow off the back of the draper head, I am dependent upon that cover, that mulch, to help that cover crop get up and get going. So I have a a double emphasis to make sure I have uniform cover. Uh, But Phil always talks about don't buy a bigger header than what your combine can throw. So that's a key point. And I'm actually uh, trading combines and getting a bigger combine now, but we're going to keep the same with uh, draper head to make sure that we can cover that uh, swath from side to side, not only for uniform distribution of residue, but for uniformity and covering those seeds that are on the ground under that residue.
3: So most combine manufacturers, and let's pick on John Deere for a minute, if you buy a a late model John Deere combine, you've really got four chopper or spreader options. So number one is the spreader option, which is generally the cheapest option, which does a reasonable job spreading residue as long as the header width doesn't exceed the ability of the chopper or spreader to spread the residue over. That works good until you get into damp, tough beans sometimes they don't spread very well they tend to throw handfuls of wrapped viny material and no tilling into them the next spring can sometimes be a challenge so most of the growers or all of the growers i work with would have a chopper when you switch gears to choppers you've really got three options from john Deere. number one you've got the standard tailboard which is just a, a generally a 12 vertical vein tailboard behind a straw chopper that spins plus or minus 23, 2400 RPM with a fan at both ends as standard on the John Deere chopper that helps give you some air volume to help blow some of the fines. So that would be the cheaper option. It's just called the standard tailboard chopper. You can then upgrade that from the factory to what they call PowerCast, which is two large rotating spinners that couple directly behind the tailboard, the vane tailboard, but it doesn't have a tailboard, but it couples behind the chopper, let's say. And then at the high end, you've got what's called advanced power cast, which is the European higher quality, higher cost chopper that does a much better job distributing residue flatter, wider to give you the best spread pattern, on the deer range. So that's called the advanced power cast. So there's different costs associated with different choppers and other manufacturers have got similar offerings. The challenge I see is, you know, farmers are spending five, 600,000 up to a million plus for X9 combines, but a lot of farmers are buying the cheaper choppers or spreaders and the bigger heads to go on the front of them, but they're not allocating the financial resources. And it's not a lot different, eight or $10,000 to get the better choppers. So they're going with the bigger heads on the bigger combines, but they're not spending the money that they need to on the better chopper, choppers to get the standards of distribution they need for better residue management with their equipment and more uniform emergence out of the ground of your, of all crops, whether it's wheat, whether it's covers, whether it's corn, whether it's beans. You want a uniform soil temperature at depth so those plants emerge at the same time. And if you've got streaks like the manufacturer showed at the farm show this past February, you're not going to get the standards of uniformity that you need for high yields, especially if it's no-till. Even in a min-till environment, heavy residue, they still don't incorporate enough to offset that differential in soil temperatures.
1: Let's talk about that uniformity because you talked about different combines and different machines having different spreads of that residue. Why is this uniformity so important?
3: I think the big challenge is the handling of the residue. And I'm going to give you an example. So there's a lot of wheat raised in Kentucky. There's a lot of good wheat raised in Kentucky. The state average, I think it was last year or the year before, was right at 90 so with higher yields, and that's the state average, there's producers out there raising you know, significantly higher yields than that. But the producers that are doing better with wheat yields have greater volumes of straw to manage out of the back of the combine. And wheat would be a good example to attest to that. So if you've got 110, 120, 130 bushel wheat or better, there's a lot of residue coming out of the back of the combine. We're far enough south, we can still double crop soybeans after wheat. So if that combine is doing like the one at Louisville Farm Show did and that head was 40 foot wide and that combine was spreading residue 20 feet out of the back, that grower's going to have a big time trying to get beans through the residue into the soil in the heavy residue bands, maybe experience plugging of the row units, very in-depth control problems. And in the areas where there's little to no residue, the soil is going to dry out because you've not got that cover of, of residue on the soil it's going to get hotter it's going to dry out faster so you've got again differences in emergence based on the residue and then the issues of planting through or into that residue and setting up a planter i mean i love delta force and similar systems but there's only so much money you can spend on a planter and still be able to manage the variability in residue so We've got a prototype. It's not a prototype anymore. It was a prototype when we got it, but it's it's a system from precision planting called Cedar Force, and it's basically a system similar to Delta Force on a planter, except it's a row by row hydraulic downforce system on a drill. And we had the first one on a drill, and we prototyped it and and did uh, research for precision planting. But I've got maps of me planting into a field after after wheat harvest and the combine didn't do a great job spreading residue. And you can see every band of heavier residue and light and heavy and light alternating across the field, looking at the monitor in the amount of downforce applied to the row units to achieve a similar margin. So just differentials in residue was influencing downforce on the row units to keep a standard margin or as close as possible to a standard margin margin on the gauge wheel to secure consistent depth. So there's a lot of avenues, but that's kind of the, the most important ones, okay?
1: Yeah, and I want to go to Ray next and ask, what's been your experience with spreading residue and how that residue spreads affects your own crops?
2: One of the things I, I would like to talk about that we haven't really covered is picking corn. And one of the things I learned from Marion Calmer is is that corn should be separated from the residue at the corn head, not in the combine. So we are real conscious of not running too much residue through the combine. And that has to do with speed and height of cut, uh, picking corn high instead of low. And that relates to us spreading cover crop under the noses in between the snap and rollers on the corn head. So we're putting as much residue as possible through our 12 row corn head and getting it on the ground and not in the combine. Often you'll go by a field of a uh, very high yielding corn and you can't believe how much residue is going through that, that chopper and combine. So uh, Phil touched very well on wheat and beans, but corn, while it's not that hard to spread it off the back, it, it's more important that you separate that ear from the residue and from the stalk at the corn head. So that's something we haven't touched on and isn't related to the back of the combine, but related to the front of the combine. And of course, I'm in a wheat double crop country, so everything Phil talked about there is important. But this is big corn country, big yields in my area, big machinery and so forth. But I see a lot of farmers running way too much residue through their combines. So that residue interferes with your combines ability to to float that residue and separate the corn uh, from the fodder so in our fields you seldom see any volunteer corn uh, some of our other farmers in the area it looks like they've drilled corn out there there's so much on the ground so I thought I might touch on picking corn a little bit versus throwing residue out the back of the combine.
3: That's a good point, Ray. You can go to a farm show, something like the any of the Farm Progress shows or Ohio Farm Science Reviews, any of them, and you can watch four, five, six different brands of combine and watch them all shell in the same corn and watch how much material is exiting the back they call it mog the manufacturers call it mog material other than grain so they're talking about the leaves the shucks the fodder in general but i'm always amazed how little material there is coming out of some combines and then the next one's just dumping it out and when it dumps it out of the back you know if you if you've got a 12 or a 16 row header especially you know a lot of them combines are only spreading it eight rows or six rows sometimes so Yeah, Ray's absolutely nailed it there. You've got to set up the head. You've got to select the head, set up the head, maintain the head, adjust the head from a speed perspective. There's a lot of factors there that influence how much material is ingested by the head into the combine. And I can't overemphasize what what Ray just said. That's really important for corn.
2: And I've learned so much from Phil. But picking high, leaving those corn stalks erect, helps you a lot of people plant 15 inch beans but we drill them and we think that the yields are far superior with a drill but you got to be able to uh, penetrate that residue by picking high uh, you're leaving a lot of the residue upright and that helps with penetration of the drill and so forth but also we farm a lot of river bottoms and we want that residue collecting soil out of flood water, sort of like the gills of a fish. We want that collecting soil. And what we see is with our cover crops is they anchor down the residue that's on the ground and then the corn stalks get covered with mud. And so instead of our residue floating away, we like to accumulate soil in our river bottom so we don't have to use any additional fertility we just get these fabulous soils that are in the water columns so you know and uh, we hear people talk about well we have to chop up the corn stalks or we got to tell them to keep them from floating away or blowing away well i could show you from one field to the other how leaving that residue there anchored with the cover crop is far superior than even chisel plowed fields where the stalks are st- stacked up along the road so thick you can't hardly drive through them so those are you know those are things that are not talked a lot about in in no-till and cover crops but they are definitely advantages that help put more money in your pocket and
3: less residue in the gulf of mexico that's a good point ray and it's been 20 25 years since i did this but I was with a farmer one day, and and this was in the river bottoms that flooded, similar to what I think you're seeing, but there was an area where some soil had been deposited from from the flood water, and the farmer said, I wonder what kind of nutrient value there is in that soil. So he had a spade in the back, and we dipped out a little bit of soil and sent it to a lab, and the P and the K levels pretty much maxed out on the bar chart so any kind of soil that you can retain from floodwater, I think, has probably got some of the highest nutrient value soil you'll probably ever find.
2: And that's great. I agree completely. We, uh, we have seats in our duck blinds. So after a flood, we always have to wash off the inside of our duck blinds. So one time I just let it dry. It was in one flood, three-eighths of an inch thick. And so we collected it up and sent it off to a lab. It was the best soil test. Even the potash, which shocked me, was high. But cation exchange capacity, organic matter, P levels were just, you know, you're just getting the best dirt in the world deposited on your ground. And that shouldn't be. Farmers shouldn't be losing that. That's but right. if you're in the river bottoms, you don't want scour erosion. You want to collect that soil, and uh, and 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 that is an advantage of how you pick that corn crop and how you anchor that down with cover crops. And there's a lot of river bottoms in my area. There, you know, we're in a part of the country with high rainfall. That means a lot of floodplains that are.
1: You're listening to the Hat Soil Health Podcast brought to you by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative with Ray McCormick, a farmer in southwestern Indiana, and Phil Needham of Needham Ag Technologies. So with the rainfall and with all that flooding, it sounds like there can be a lot of challenges as far as uh, farming in those areas. Um, I also want to think about some of the challenges that farmers might face when they're leaving residue or leaving the stocks. What are some uh, challenges that you've experienced whenever you've been setting up these systems with seeding cover crops with a combine and leaving residue?
2: Well, the first time that I set a seeder on a corn head, I'd never seen anybody do that. I wanted to be able to put the cover crop on in one pass. So we got a seeder that was in the back of a shop That was the only way we could get one that wasn't six months out. And we put it on the corn head in a matter of hours just to see why it wouldn't work. And after 300 acres, I'm like, my golly, I think it's going to work. So when you talk about challenges, the challenge is the operator when I forget to turn it on or something like that. But some farmers say, well, I don't have time To be filling up a cedar on my combine well you know they got somebody out with a drill or they're paying an airplane or it's rained and they can't get their cover crop on or it's it's too wet to put a cover crop on in my case those challenges are gone because if we can get across the field which you always can i'm probably different than most farmers if it rains two inches and the sun comes out we're back to harvesting those fields hold you up so well that we can harvest if the material is dry enough to harvest. We don't worry about the ground because it'll hold you up and of course rain makes those seeds come up, makes that cover crop come up. So the challenges of using cover crops is almost completely gone away we use a a pre-blended seed mix for whatever crops next year whether it's in a floodplain we use bulk tender to fill it up so we fill up two and sometimes three times a day well that's like planting corn or planting wheat you fill up two or three times a day and your crop's seeded so it really eliminates so many of the challenges of getting a good stand. And that and that distributing it at a slow speed with an air seeder makes the stand so consistent. Unlike a drill where you have a gap every seven and a half inches that the rain can hit, this is more like grass in your yard. It, it's just about covering every inch. And uh, so we use a lot lower rates than a lot of people we usually are in about the 13 pounds per acre range when we're seeding and and you can take that times the cost of what you're paying for annual ryegrass or an annual ryegrass mix and so forth but that's probably in the nine to twelve dollar an acre range for the cover crop and no cost
3: for applying it or seeding it we started planting soybeans directly into standing covers yesterday, so I'm very fortunate to have a son, he's 25 now, and he's grown up around me and me working with growers that know-till for all of his life. I mean, it's pretty funny, he knows most of the farmers in our, in our area, and I mean, he'll He he, he knows which are the the best farmers in the area. He'll he'll drive past a field when they're vertical tilling a field, and he'll say, why are they working that? You know what I mean? So he's grown up with no-till. He's grown up with a lot of cover crops more recently. And for those of you that know where our shop is, the field next to where a shop hasn't been tilled for 24 or 25 years now. And yesterday, we were no-tilling beans into green standing covers. We're going to terminate them in a few days we've got some slugs so we're leaving the the green cover there to give the slug something to eat on until the beans come up but that's another side story but we no-tilled into standing covers yesterday with a John Deere uh, single disc drill and that soil is moist where the residue is thick Anywhere where there's little to no residue for whatever reason, the ground was as hard as you can imagine you couldn't couldn't hardly push a pocket knife into the ground where the soil was not covered. So anytime you have dense covers it it keeps the soil moister for longer. You don't have to plant as deep. You can put a bean in the ground three quarters of an inch deep, maybe an inch deep, and it comes right up because it's into this mellow soil that's 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 in great shape for emergence. Again, any areas around me that that didn't touch their soybean residue last fall, and they're trying to no-till corn into those fields. You know that residue. There's not enough there. There's no cover crops, and some of them guys are having a hard time getting a planter in the ground because the soil's dried out. So there's lots of benefits of soil of of cover crops. Raised pretty well covered that, but one of the biggest ones we're seeing this year when it's dry and when it's hot and windy and the moisture is disappearing so so fast especially on some of the clay soils just having a cover crop there to hold the moisture long enough to get the crop in and emerging out of the ground so the root structure can take, can root deeper you know that's where it's at in our area the suppression
2: of weeds especially mares tail is dramatic where ray forgets to turn the cedar on there's this mass of mare, mares tail and when you get to the annual ryegrass, even at the low rates that I see that, there is no mare's tail. It cannot take the competition of a cover crop. So, so we talk, you know, there's probably 25 benefits to cover crops. But when Phil's out there drilling into the green, like we're going to do here real soon, is the weed suppression is dramatic where you work the ground you essentially stimulate seed per, the seeds to germinate and, and come up. So so having that math that he's talking about not only makes great planting conditions, but it also aids with suppression of some of our most difficult no till weeds, especially what we call mare's tail in this
1: With all these advantages of cover crops, let's take a look and break down the process of using the combine to seed the cover crops. What kinds of equipment are we looking at? Uh, What can farmers do to customize their equipment uh, to do this? And what are some of the things that they should think about if they want to get started?
2: Well, there's some new seeders on the market that are adapted to hooking to the main combine, uh, not the head. I started out by putting cedars on the head. I continue to do that. The disadvantage of that is you don't have a lot of volume and you have a separate cedar or cedars for the platform or draper and for the corn head. If you have a bulk tank that's either attached, one company sells one to the right of the cab, so you you don't have your visibility blocked over your he- uh, your head, your corn head, or your platform, and another company has one that's mounted to the side of the combine in those cases, like a three inch hose feeds a distributor that takes it out air hoses on your head like I have, but the bulk cedar is on the combine so so that is some of the new companies adaptations where they're using a system like mine, but it's a little more cost effective. Mine's pretty expensive when you go to mounting the entire apparatus on the head and putting the air distribution and so forth. Uh, you know, it's not cheap. You're going to be $10,000, probably 10 to $15,000, but that's less than one year's worth of the cost of flying it on and so forth. Um, The plumbing it into your hydraulics is pretty simple. I think most farmers can figure that out when you're using one on a corn head. You have the quick attach or detach lever on the side of the feeder house. You have an extra port there that would be utilized on a platform for a reel. Uh, You can just plumb right into that and quick detach your head and the hydraulics. A uh, Draper has a separate hydraulic system that can replace the PTO-driven cross auger in the middle, and you can plumb into that and make a circle with your hydraulics and run two cedars. That's what I'm doing to get more distance, and uh, that works well. After that, you can tie some of the new cedars into Uh, your John Deere monitor and run variable rate and run swath control. So there's new adaptations that can give you uh, lots of additional things you can do seeding versus the way I started out, which was electric driven motor. So it's consistently putting out the same rate and then you needed hydraulics for the blower that blows the seed. So, um, there's new systems that have a lot of the bugs worked out, but if you want to plumb in a regular, uh, Gandy cedar like I have, it's quite simple and mounting to the heads, pretty simple. Um, uh, the most difficult thing we had was, was putting it on, uh, uh, any kind of head that doesn't have hydraulic detection on under the head. So that, that electrical uh, connection can raise and lower that head no matter how much weight is on that cedar. if it's a spring-loaded system uh, on your uh, draper, then it throws the weight off and so forth by having a cedar out to the side. So McDon can be more difficult. Uh, they pivot different with the reel. So we had to move our air seater to the center of our McDon But now that we went to a John Deere draper, it doesn't care whether there's extra weight on there. We've never had trouble with our combine lifting the head with that extra weight and so forth. So it works pretty well without a lot of really difficult engineering to get them on your head. Or you can work with a company that are making them specifically for doing that now.
3: Generally, when I'm at a farm equipment dealership, oftentimes I'll just walk up and look closely at the at the chopper or the spreader or the both on a on a combine. And almost every used combine that's sitting on a dealer's lot, and you might take into consideration that that owner knew he was going to trade off the combine, so he didn't spend any money on maintenance or adjustments. And some could be there's something that could be said for that but generally when you look at used combines on a dealer's lot and you peer at the condition of the stationary knives, the rotary knives and just look at the condition most of them have got chunks missing there might be flails missing at least there shouldn't be because it throws it out of out of balance extremely quick but sometimes the flails are missing pieces you know some of the stationary knives are missing Uh, Some of the stationary knives are partially broke off. I mean, you can see that that wasn't a recent event to damage or lose some of those vital components because it it massively influences the performance of that chopper. The speed, you know, if the knives are sharp, the rotor speed in the chopper tends to stay higher. As the blades become duller, the fuel use increases, the spread width decreases. So just putting new knives in a chopper a will save you fuel b it chops and spreads better because you can retain close to ideal rotor speed maintain the choppers from a point of view of inspecting and replacing stationary knives rotary knives when they start getting worn and generally farmers aren't good at that okay
1: So, Ray, I want to go back to you and ask about um, why would we want to use the air seeder on the combine rather than go back through after the crop has been harvested to seed our cover crops?
2: Number one, to go back through it takes an additional person or an additional trip. So, back when we drilled our cover crops... Uh, we believed in it so much that I had my son out there drilling constantly, not running the dryer, not hauling semi loads of grain to the bin. He spent much of his time drilling cover crops because I felt it was so important. So number one, we lost a third of our harvesting crew to seeding cover crops. Secondly, the amount of tire and rubber damage was dramatic so tires are extremely expensive to run a tractor and a drill back across freshly harvested fields uh, that stubble whether it's corn stubble or bean stubble will dramatically damage tires and and the gauge wheels on the drills would take a heck of a beating. And on a drill, you know, it's expensive to upkeep a drill. So we eliminated another trip, which is environmentally friendly because you're not using the fuel and you're not using the money to redrill. You're not using the manpower and you're not damaging a drill or the rubber on the drill or the tractor. Those those things are quite dramatically changed because your combine is already making that trip. You can use stock stompers like we do. To uh, We use logger tires on our combine, so we eliminate tire damage. So you just essentially eliminate a lot of damage to your equipment and being very environmentally friendly by doing it in a one-pass system. And that's what drove me to want to do it that's what kept me awake at night is saying how can i do it in one pass how can i do it with a combine how? so i laid awake and laid awake and asked questions and thought about it and said by golly i'm gonna try it so right during the middle of harvest we stopped and put one on as i told you and and after 300 acres i'm like i can't understand why it's not gonna work and it does it, it's incredible
1: That sounds really cool of going through that process and trying to figure out and strategize what can be better about this whole system.
2: Farmers feel intimidated growing a cover crop because they are concerned about what people are going to think of them. And I would encourage you to start the quilt. Be a leader in your community on being a good steward to the land and, and promoting soil health because this this is the future of our planet. This is the future of your children's children's soils and, and their environment that they're going to grow in. And you should not worry about what other people are going to think of you. You should think of what your responsibilities are as a good steward and be a leader in your community so that others can help fill in that quilt. I live in an area where The quilt has a lot of cover crops, so it's a badge of honor to have a beautiful green cover crop out there. And many of my neighbors that used to work ground now have cover crops. So it can be hard if you're in an area where there isn't a lot of cover crops, but I would encourage you to be a leader, learn from others that do it, and I think it'll be something that every farmer can be proud of.
1: Phil, similar to uh, Ray just gave some advice and some takeaways, what would you say would be your number one takeaway for someone who's listening to the podcast? And what advice would you give to someone who's interested in um, seeding cover crops with a combine?
3: If you've had a history, a known history of residue spreading issues with a combine, spend the time on the adjustments and the maintenance get somebody to help that's knowledgeable in the subject if you're not good in that subject area, but it really, really starts. Uniform emergence starts with uniform residue spread, especially on no-till, also if it's min till if you're just flat out working the ground, then maybe you're covering up the problem. But there's still nutrients contained in in that residue that can still have an effect. But I'm gonna say successful no-till, especially successful no-till into cover crops absolutely begins with good residue management. So we've talked about this already, but just to recap, don't select a head on the combine any wider than the ability of the chopper or spreader at the back to spread residue over. So if your chopper-spreader combination only spreads residue 30 feet, you don't need a head on the front any wider than 30. And most combines have the option for improved choppers and spreaders. Almost every brand, if not every brand, has better spreading products to help you with that and you may have to upgrade but your dealer or manufacturer rep can can help you with that but yeah Ray's pretty well summed it up spreading cover crops on the head with the head at harvest time he said it extremely well saves a pass saves the wear and tear on the equipment saves the labor the diesel fuel I mean he said it extremely well that's something to consider and You know, a lot of people will say, well, just try a few acres. It's hard to do that because you're going to spend the money to equip yourself with this technology. Just go visit somebody that's been trying it and using it. Learn what they know and get yourself set up to do it. I mean, whether you plant it with a drill, whether you seed your cover crop with a combine, the difference is really the same. We need to be encouraging cover crops because... Me driving around the country in the, in the fall or in the spring, there's a lot of soil loss. And I see that across a lot of areas. So just the covers and encouraging people to plant green into those covers, ideally, there's a lot of opportunities for plant health, moisture preservation. And I'll end this portion by giving you an example. So last year for us in Kentucky was an, was an unusual dry year as dry as many as have said since the late 80s. So the field we had last year next to our uh, our, our shop last year was in corn. It was no-tilled into cereal rye. The rye was flowering when we no-tilled into it. We terminated it maybe a week later. We left some strips that we terminated later, but we'll not discuss that now. But they yielded right at the same. But having cereal rye cover a head of corn and when that rye fell over it covered the ground there was a huge amount of biomass on the soil surface and when it turned dry in june and essentially july we had some days that was in the high 90s to low hundreds and despite the the dry weather hurting our corn and it did our corn made about 165 average the year before or the two years before it was 235 just for a reference. But our corn was decent for the year and our corn still had good plant health there was rarely a curled, curled up leaf apart from maybe on the ends where there was some compaction but almost every field around that was conventional till or mint till last year twisted up visibly either a quarter or half of the fields had twisted up a, about 10 days earlier than ours so we still got hurt some by the dry weather but the tillage guys their fields were twisting up plus or minus 10 days earlier than ours and that was a massive difference. planted about the same time i mean we were planting about the same time as the neighbors similar maturity hybrids but the difference was their fields twisted up on the hillsides plus or minus 10 days before our hillsides similar soils just within a half mile you could see it so I guess my encouragement today would be to get more people involved with cover crops. There's a lot of knowledge out there. Listen to some people, talk to some people that are doing it and adopt more cover crops.
1: If a listener wanted to learn more about what we've talked about today, where could they go for more information? We've
3: got quite a bit of of information on on our website. You can also go to YouTube, type in needham ag so our website's needhamag.com on our youtube channel it's needham ag one word needham ag and i think we've got i don't know what we've got 60 or 80 videos on there some of them are equipment related some are residue management related some of them are cover crop related but there's a there's a broad base of videos and you can just flat out go to to youtube and study some of the the people that have been doing cover crops for a long time like dave brandt Great guy, very passionate, willing to try about anything, and he's been very successful doing that. So that that attitude has has helped him and and a lot of growers. So that would be where I'd start for for more information. In addition to just seeking out some local growers in your area that have been doing it for a long time, find out what's been successful and and what didn't work. If you haven't been to the National
2: No-Till Conference, that's a great place to meet some of the best innovative no-tillers in the country. And that will be in January in Indianapolis. So that's a great source of information. Uh, The NRCS USDA soil health uh, website has a lot of great videos there. And, uh, you know, if, if you've not been to any of the soil and water conservation district field days it's a chance for you to see what other farmers are doing and having success with in your area and you know we we grow in diverse habitats diverse rainfall and soils and 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 slopes and everything so what works best in your area you'll have to determine that but I bet you've got neighbors that have already learned a lot and you shouldn't be shy about asking them for advice. Farmers have the opportunity to sequester carbon through photosynthesis into the soil. It is our best chance at offsetting climate change. And that carbon is the key component for the future of our soils and growing healthy food and good yields so that we can play a role by sequestering carbon free from the atmosphere and not releasing it back by never tilling the ground. Uh, Farmers have a chance to be the number one best opportunity to offset climate change. And there's gonna be a lot of money put forward to encourage farmers to do just that.
1: Phil, Ray, thanks so much for your information that you shared today and for joining us on the Hat Soil Health podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks I've for the
3: opportunity. It. Uh, yes, thank you, Elise. Great to talk to you.
1: Same here. And I want to thank our listeners as well. Thanks for tuning in right before harvest to learn about uh, some tricks and tips for planting cover crops during harvest. For Who's Your Today, I'm Elise Koning.
0: This episode of the Hoosier Ag Today Soil Health Podcast has been brought to you by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. You can learn more about their efforts and see a schedule of events at ccsin.org. Thanks for joining us and until next time, create your riches below the surface with healthy soil.